out what kind of experience you want. That's what indie publishing offers is a multitude of options. You're not stuck with just one publishing experience. You can decide, do you just want to do one book, one memoir, and be happy with it? Have some print copies on your shelf to to sell at reunions? Or do you want a, a full career? Welcome to The Author Biz, the show that's all about the business of being an author. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and this is episode number 36. Wherever you are, however you listen, thanks for spending some of your time with me today. Are you ever curious about editing? Oh, sure. We all know what editing is, at least as it pertains to our writing. But my experience of editing is no doubt much different than yours. Big five published authors wonder if they could find the type of editing they're used to getting if they were to indie publish their next book. Indie authors wonder what the process would be like if they signed a contract with a big five publisher. I'm naturally curious, so I looked for an editor so I could try and clear some of this up for us. Someone with big five editing experience who's now working as a freelancer. Brian Quatermus is an editor and an author. His first book, Murder Boy, is coming out on March 31st. He has over a decade of publishing experience that began in New York with Random House. He spent time running Angry Robot Books, crime fiction imprint, as well as working as a freelance editor for New York Times bestselling authors. Books he's edited have been selected as Best of the Year by USA Today and Library Journal, among others. So I'll quiz him on this and more. I hope I'll ask the questions that you'd like to have answered. Before we get started, I've got a quick announcement, sort of a public service announcement, if you will, to our author listeners. Did you know that Google was changing their search algorithm on April 21st? If your author website isn't mobile-friendly, they're going to penalize you in the search results. Checking to figure out whether or not your site is mobile-friendly is pretty easy. If you're not sure about your site, I've written a short blog post on how to check it and what to expect at theauthorbiz.com slash Google. I checked the AuthorBiz site in less than a minute, then I checked every other site I had just to be sure. I'm in good shape, and I hope you are too. Now let's get on with the interview. Brian Quatermus, welcome to the AuthorBiz. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The purpose of today's show is editing. We're going to talk about editing. You're an editor. You've got a lot of experience in publishing. You've been editing for a while, and you have a book that's coming out. So we'll, we'll get to the book in a little bit, a crime fiction thriller called Murder Boy. But first, I, I'd like to get into editing. So let's start out by just giving listeners a little bit of your background in publishing and what makes you uh, the person to ask these questions about editing. Sure. Sounds good. So I got started in 2001 um, as an intern with Bantam Dell uh, Random House. I went, lived in New York City for a while, worked with crime fiction and science fiction and romance, all the sort of um, commercial fiction mm-hmm. that I had always enjoyed reading. And one of the reasons I was able to get such a prestigious uh, position out of Flint, Michigan, where I was living at the time, was because I was one of the few people who applied who had actually read all the books they published. (laughs) So first day, sitting around the table, everybody's introducing themselves from Columbia and Princeton and Harvard and Yale and all these small liberal arts colleges. And I'm from a 
an off-site campus of the University of Michigan out in Flint, Michigan. And like I said, I was the only one who had actually read the books. <laughs> and to to get the job, you had to they gave you a stack of books and you you had to tear them apart, write what was wrong with them, what you thought was good with them, basically do a, a small little edit. So enjoyed the job, did not enjoy being poor in New York City. <laughs> that, that's so a tough job, being poor was, in New York City. <laughs> it was rough. I gave it a go, but uh, came back to Ann Arbor, and after having lived in New York, Ann Arbor didn't seem nearly as, as expensive as, as I had been led to believe. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this was the time where you really had to live in New York City, or possibly maybe Los Angeles, if you were lucky, to work in publishing. So here I was, out of school, wanting to work in publishing, but really not wanting to, to live in New York. So I did what anybody else would normally do, and I went and became a medical administrative assistant. <laughs> and did that for about five years, still keeping up in the publishing industry. Had a lot of friends who lived in New York, um, kind of followed the industry, what was going on. And things started to change. Um, I I edited a, an online crime fiction magazine called Demolition, and that was kind of the first taste that I could still do the editing I love and not have to live in New York. I had my writers all over the, all over the country. Um, we did that for about four years and won some awards, got some great press from it. The, just the, the back end of, of running a, a website and a, a magazine was, was rough, so I closed that down. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on my own writing along the, along the way, but still the, the editing has always been something that I've really enjoyed. And I think it's made me a better writer. So I've always tried to keep my hand in it. And so right around the time that we were phasing out of demolition and all of that, I started hearing rumblings of the indie publishing movement was really starting to, to take hold and talk to some of my friends who Coincidentally, the time of the indie publishing rise, a lot of editors were losing their jobs, getting downsized, getting demoted, getting basically just squeezed out of the business and going out and rolling right into freelance editing. And so I started talking to a couple of them who were doing this, and I I really didn't know enough about indie publishing to really go out and start start recruiting clients, but I was able to... Um, really kind of just fall into work with Karina Publishing, which is the digital publishing arm of Harlequin okay. Publishing. Mm-hmm. Through there, started to get this whole hybrid motion, um, hybrid thing going that I, I really enjoyed. Because a lot of the authors who published with Karina would do one series with traditional publishing, one series with digital publishing, and a couple other series on their own. Um, romance writers have always been very, very productive writers. And so that was a great industry to be in to kind of see the exciting things traditional publishing was doing. And believe it or not, traditional publishing in some areas is doing some exciting things, but also to see these really ambitious, innovative authors working. And so I learned as much from them as as they did from me. And so after working with uh, Karina for about a year, I started picking up some of my own freelance clients and they started referring me out and I realized there's this huge community kind of, um, really seeking really experienced, um, 
authors who have kind of the experience of traditional publishing, but mm-hmm. don't bring kind of the elitism and <laughs> some of the other things that traditional publishing has always kind of looked down upon with with commercial fiction. So I I was trying to play both sides and work the work the traditional publishing with Karina and work mm-hmm. the indie publishing. And within the space of about another year and a half was able to go full time. Um quit the the medical job and and started freelancing full time. And where are we here? What year is this? This is two oh wow. Two thousand eleven, I believe. Okay. We're we're right around in there. After working on my own for a while, I I had the the pleasure of meeting some people who were looking for a crime fiction editor for um, a new imprint that Angry Robot Books was starting. Okay, I had heard of Angry Robot Books, great little innovative um, indie publisher that was big in science fiction and fantasy. They were looking to branch out into crime fiction. So things get in motion. We talk, we chat. They they run me up the flagpole as the editor of their new crime fiction imprint. Great, love it, wonderful. Seven months later, their investors decided that crime fiction is not an industry they want to be in and shut the imprint down. And Mm -hmm. all the trouble I had seen all my friends go through four or five years before in traditional publishing, I went through myself. So I kind of had a a bit of an editorial crisis at at that point. Um, Still loved, loved, loved the editorial process, working with authors helping them kind of bring a vision to focus. But I had seen a lot of ugly stuff in that seven months, you know, mm-hmm. um, s- sort of seeing the the author's vision skewed by the needs of the, the commercial publisher. You know, I never felt like I was able to totally be the author's best advocate. I always had uh, my employer. Yeah, and that's uh, I would assume that's the way it is. If you if you're an editor in traditional publishing, you're working for the publisher. Yep. So I had to I had to turn down some great books that we just couldn't sell to even our small marketing board, and then most crushingly, I had to take some books that were really great, really unique, really visceral, and soften the edges and kind of take out sometimes what was what really made them special. So as I'm sitting there thinking about this, I had kind of a, a few bitter months, but um, realized I was in a great position now to go back to doing what I really loved, which is working directly with authors. And that's what I do now. Um, it's almost entirely by referrals. Um, I like to think if I do a good job, they'll tell their their friends. And what's great is the the indie publishing community is so productive and community oriented that they're putting out three, four, five books a year. So you, you get yourself a couple of steady clients and mm-hmm. they get you a couple of steady clients. And it, it's been a wonderful experience. And I have another day job now that takes care of my bills, takes care of my my insurance, my retirement. So I can take projects that just really mean something special to me and take on authors that really mean something special to me. So that's where I am right now. 
Okay, that's a that's a great background, and it's a, <laughs> it's a fascinating story. Uh, the whole idea, the other side of the story when you were at Angry Books is I'm sure that you brought in books, and and we hear these stories all the time. If if you listen to the, this kind of podcast, where an author had a book that had been accepted by a publisher, and then the the imprint goes away, or the publisher goes away, or whatever. So it's kind of interesting to hear the flip side of that. Well, and it, it's funny because I experienced the only bad moment I've ever experienced in my editorial career working with Angry Robot Books, which is when I, as an author, accepted three, four, five books of friends of mine and got to hear the joy in their their, uh-huh. their voices while my book's still making the rounds of, <laughs> of publishing. <laughs> so I, I also got to hear my own phone call, my own email, and get the great news about my book during that time as well. But there, that is the, the, the kind of dichotomy you run, though, working as an editor and a writer. While you're doing all this, you also traditionally published a number of short stories, didn't you? I did. Well, actually, no. They all started as online short okay. stories right. and then got picked up through reprint anthologies. Oh, so okay. Even from the uh- beginning, I've always kind of been involved in both sides. But mm-hmm. again... Um, I started trying to publish short stories in the traditional print publications, but they just they weren't open to the sort of stuff I was writing, which was darker and edgier and um, a little more avant-garde. I was able to get some great online publications that kind of raised my profile. So I've always liked the the mix of traditional and online and digital publishing. And, and you mentioned... The indie community, and it's something that we that we hear about from time to time. And one of the things that I I think is just fabulous is that whenever I talk to someone who has a great editor, they want to tell me about their editor. Mm-hmm. It, it's not like I've got this great editor, but I don't want you to use them. Right. You know, it's everyone seems to be supportive of one another, and if you're out there providing a high level of service, people are going to find out about you. Well, even among editors, you'd think there'd be a lot of competition, but I have friends who also freelance, and we share clients among each other because if you get a project that sounds great, but it's at the wrong time or something you just did a whole bunch of that you're trying to move away from, we all share clients. And most of the the big clients I have right now came from other editors I knew who just were overbooked. They were too busy. Hmm, Interesting. So it is. It's great, but... And I, I think we it's it's rough to talk about just the indie community because just like any community, there's there's multiple communities within the indie community, and that there's some really great professional people who do tend to pass names around of cover designers and copy editors and interior designers, and they really really care about the the quality of the product as much as the the quality of their writing. And as people pass around these names of the people that do the good work, then the level of the of, of the work coming out of the indie community improves, and the people that yep. read the product are more willing to buy it. It's just a you know it's a it's a, a virtuous circle, so to speak. It is. It's it's great. It's wonderful, and I've got to meet some great people out of it. So I've I've been very happy with how it's all all worked out. Okay, now let's let's dig in a little bit. <laughs> To the different types of editing. There are a lot of terms for the different types of editing. Um, mm-hmm. at, 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 I don't know whether you'd call this the highest level or the lowest level, but we'll start with 
what I would call content editing, what you might call developmental editing. What's yep. a developmental edit? And sure, developmental edits is actually my specialty. Okay, and that's that's big picture. It is. It's content, structural, um, plot holes, character motivation, the sort of thing I think people think when they think of of New York editing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's taken the the big picture and looking at how the book works as a whole. Um, I usually read through the manuscript a couple of times, take notes, kind of come at it once as a reader would. Just how how the how the thing is built. Um, I'm not sure if you want. <laughs> I can go on and talk about these things for no. Go forever, ahead because so. I I find this fascinating and I. Anyone who's out there who's thinking about who's who's writing a book now and who's never gone through this process is going to need to know this. So as much detail as you want to provide is is cool with me. Okay, Um, this is also the one I think that most people are comfortable paying for because it's the one that you really can't get with beta readers and with um, first readers and and things like that, because this is the sort of thing that really does take training. And I think. Coming from it as a writer and as an editor, I kind of have a special relationship with this because I can respect the author's vision. We, we talked earlier about how sometimes that was compromised when you work in traditional publishing. And as a, as a writer, I'm very cognizant of not directly changing an author's text. I like to ask questions, and I know that's how I work. So really a developmental edit is a conversation between the author and the editor. Um, a lot of times, I, particularly with the really savvy clients I have, they'll know where their weak spots are. And they'll come to me and say, okay, I've gotten this to the point where I can take it. But I still know either the middle's sagging or my ending doesn't feel right. Or I've got everything middle and end great, but I just can't get into it, can't get it started right, or this character is bothering me. So a lot of times I I come at it that way, working with the author on a specific issue. And is this just something where the author needs another set of eyes on it, or you know, why can't they, and I'm just playing the devil's advocate here, why can't they figure it out themselves if they know that the middle is sagging? (laughs) Well, a lot of times they're just too close to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, they've spent a year working on it. Um, they've spent a lot of time invested in this community. And a lot of times they're just too close to it. But a lot of times authors aren't always the best editors. You know, <laughs> there's a difference between with plumbing. I know when a faucet's leaking, I don't always know how to fix it. I haven't worked with plumbing enough to know where traditionally leaks tend to come from. Mm-hmm. So, somebody like myself who has worked with a whole lot of books across multiple genres and multiple structures, I have this base knowledge that that most editors have who who have the kind of experience we're, we're talking about, who have just done this for so long, they understand the structure of fiction and understand where most people usually go wrong. So you can start there. But a lot of times it's just social and psychological too being able to have a conversation with an author and kind of understand what they're trying to go for and then know through training and experience how to fix it now how would you contrast the the developmental edit that you do now with 
whatever we would call it uh, at a big five publisher. Where an author submits a manuscript, they, it goes through the process, it's accepted, um, and then it goes to the editor, quote unquote, the editor, probably mm-hmm. an acquiring editor. Um, does, does the acquiring editor do what you're doing or does, is that handed off to someone else? How does no, that work? They, they do. Unfortunately, they don't get to do enough of it. This mm-hmm. is actually still the, the thing editors love to do in publishing, but so many of them, so many of them have been turned into project managers that they spend 99% of their day answering emails, coordinating production, and doing all of this, and they really don't get the chance to dig into a manuscript the way they'd like. So there are still editors who do what we've just talked about, the kind of mm-hmm. deep structural edit, but it's usually for the biggest authors or for books that um, have come in that just need a little bit of tweaking, but a lot of times, by the time they get to an acquiring editor, they're usually expected to be in publishable quality. Um, agents are actually doing most of kind of the the strong developmental editing now because, mm-hmm. unfortunately, um, big five editors just don't have the time or the luxury to do that kind of editing, and they feel as bad about it as the authors do. The business has changed so much, and there are so many fewer editors at the at the big five agencies that there's just not enough time in the day. There, there are more people, fewer people doing more work. Right, and like I said, you still get, um, particularly on the the genre side, you you get the the editors who stay up late and read on the train and and read on vacation, but um, they just publish so many books that everybody doesn't get that experience. Okay, so from your perspective, and you've been doing this a long time, Mm -hmm. um, is there a quantifiable difference between the editing that um, a big five published author might get versus someone, uh, an independent author, who hires a skilled, experienced editor like yourself? That's, That's kind of a complicated question because it just depends on the experience. Okay. Um, if you if you go traditional, there's a chance you could get the great editing experience. I know lots of great editors. I'm friends with a lot of great editors mm-hmm. who work 80, 90 hours a week to make sure their authors get that experience. But you don't know if you're going to be the author to get that editor. You know, so what you get by hiring the editor yourself is the guarantee that you get that. So that would be the quantifiable experience that you get um, kind of hiring out is you can make sure you get the editorial experience that you want. Okay, good answer. All (laughs) right, now, how long does a content edit take? How much does it cost? Um, Cost depends on a lot of things. I try not to get into specifics when I'm chatting with people because it'll just vary. Um, okay. Well, let's let's not even use specifically you as an example, but just maybe give me a, a range for sure. A, 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 the the a range is usually edit. between five hundred and fifteen hundred dollars. Okay, is the range. If you're working with an editor who used to be the executive editor of uh, Random House, mm-hmm. you're going to be closer to the fifteen hundred. 
if you're working with somebody who was an editor for 15 years at a small indie press, you're probably going to be closer to the five to $700 range, which is usually right around where I work. Um, okay. Is, is right in the seven to $800 range. Um, you can get it a lot cheaper, mm-hmm. but again, it's what, what kind of experience are you paying for? You know, um, for me, it, we're usually looking around a month for a project. Um, I've been laid down with some kind of horrible flu bug mm. that I'm just now starting to come out of. So my answer for the last six months would be closer to uh, <laughs> a month and a half, two months, mm-hmm. because it is that really intensive, deep thinking editing. Um, and that doesn't come quickly. And most authors are usually okay with that because, again, they're moving on to other projects. While I'm editing one project with almost three-quarters of my clients, while I'm editing one project, they're off writing the next project. So they get to then come back to the edits with a a fresher set of eyes. Okay. And so you send them back what? Uh, A report? Some notes? What what goes back after a developmental edit? When I first started editing back in the, the, the olden days of 2001, it was an editorial letter, which was literally a 20, 25 page letter of comments and thoughts and ideas and suggestions and just this big, massive, one sided conversation. What I learned when I started working with Karina was that most of the people now have moved away from the big, deep, developmental edits. And now that comes in comments within the the manuscript. That's the other great thing about what I do now is I don't have to trudge around three, 400 page manuscripts. It's all done on my (laughs) iPad, my Kindle, Mm -hmm. my, my laptop. So I have the ability to, instead of scratching notes on, on post-its and uh, masking tape notes and margin notes, I can really get in deep in a, in a comment and then the author sees it right where it matters. You know, sometimes when they they'd read these big long letters, you don't really get the sense of where that comment fits within the manuscript. So now, like I said, I'll read through it usually once, make some notes to myself, and then I read through it again and start making notes in the in the comments. And that's where the vast majority of things come from. And like I said, almost all the time it's usually a question. From mm-hmm. a couple of lines to <laughs> – I wrote one the other day that was almost a page long. <laughs> then usually what happens after that is I'll email the manuscript back to him with usually about a page, page and a half letter that addresses the big picture things. Um, so the the sorts of things that they're going to be looking for in that manuscript. Okay. So then the author gets the gets the notes and the comments back, goes in and makes revisions – Mm-hmm. Um, is the next step in the process the content? I'm sorry, the um, the line editing or the copy editing, whatever the correct it, term is. It usually is, mm-hmm. and it's usually not me. Okay. Um, I do do line edits, mm-hmm. but usually, for some reason, um, most of the 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 authors I work with have brought their own line editors and copy editors with them and are usually looking for um, a separate developmental editor, which is fine with me because um, while I do enjoy line edits, they don't give exactly the same sort of satisfaction that a 
a good developmental I, edit. It just seems does. like it, it's a completely different skill set to me. Um, you're reading and absorbing a story at one point, and the next you're you're, you're doing line edits. Yep, it, it's a different way of the brain working. Mm-hmm. Um, copy editors are a really misunderstood breed, and line editors are a really misunderstood breed. People think they're just nitpicky, um, fuddy duddies. But man, their their brains work in an amazing way, and I'm I'm always envious of the really really good copy. Editors. I have no idea how they do it. I I really <laughs> don't. It's it's like a magic trick to me. Okay, and then from there, so someone gets back the the developmental edit. They make the revisions. They send it to a, a line editor, copy editor, whatever the right term is. Uh, they make those changes. Then it goes to proofreading. That all just depends on the individual author. Okay. You know, some of them have their own processes down to an exact science. Okay. Um, Others are just kind of, once they get developmental editing back, they need time to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times, we won't go through drafts, but we'll still have a, a separate conversation after they've read my notes and worked through the edit. Sometimes it's clarifying a, a comment here or there. Sometimes it's clarifying an idea. Um, so it really, that's the other nice thing about the indie publishing scene is you don't have to stick to one separate process that was the traditional publishing process. You know, Sometimes people just skip right over line editing and go to a couple of beta readers and they go out and some people have a very formalized process. So the, the author is able to kind of develop the process that works for them, which I think is cool. All right. Um, I'm going to tell a quick story about uh, a developmental edit that I had. And this was for my first uh, – the first manuscript that I thought was good enough. And, okay. you know, we all have that first manuscript that we <laughs> think is good enough. And yep. I, I, you mentioned beta readers, and this is funny. And God bless them. I, I had probably a dozen people read it. I got back a few comments, but most of them were so flattering that I I won't say that I got a big head because the comments were so flattering that it was silly. <laughs> and And I knew that there were serious flaws in the book, sort of like what you were talking about earlier. I knew that there was something wrong. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, I've got to go find somebody to do this. I've got to go find somebody to do a developmental edit. And I found somebody, and I will say that they did a phenomenal job, but it was devastating. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, my manuscript was nowhere near ready. <laughs> the, the concept for the book was nowhere near ready. There were so many structural problems with the book. Um, it was just devastating, but it kept me from putting out a, an absolute piece of crap. So I'm very thankful for that experience, and now I know better. <laughs> but there, there's just tremendous value with, with this, especially for those of us who are newer at it. Yeah, that's something that I know most of us editors struggle with is that balance between um, being devastating and being too too nice. I've actually always fallen on the devastating side until I got my own developmental edit back. <laughs> and I was lucky to have a great editor who scattered the occasional nice line or uh-huh. that's funny. And when I saw what that did to me, it's kind of changed how I've done edit since then. I try and get at least a couple of nice jobs or good lines. That is so funny. I I clearly remember the one 
or, or maybe the first, there might have been a few, the first, this is a really good line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, is, that is so true. Um, all right. So y- you talked about going through the edit for your book. So let's transition now and, uh, and, and talk about your book. What was it like for you? You're, you've done this for years. You've done it for other people. You do it as a profession. You've written your own book. I, I've talked to indie authors who feel like uh, they're the best judge of, of their work and they don't need an editor. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that was not the case with you. No, I've, I'm not the best judge of my work. And I've, I've, known that for a long time. <laughs> and I was lucky to have a really phenomenal publishing experience. Um, again, a publishing experience that kind of falls in the middle of traditional and indie digital publishing. My book was actually scheduled to be a digital original mm-hmm. when I when I signed on because my publisher is just a little over a year old. So I had this really short weird, what I thought was commercially unpublishable novel, but I didn't want to put it out myself. I, because I've seen the work that goes into it and the, mm-hmm. the sort of dedication the, the true indie professionals do, I knew I don't have that, <laughs> that dedication. Mm-hmm. Um, I also didn't have that money okay. to really kind of devote to it. Mm-hmm. So I knew that this book was was odd. So when the chance came to to go with Polis, we I thought digital publishing was great for it. Um, but I was again really lucky and charmed that over the last fifteen years of working in the industry, I had built up quite a little contact base of of people who owed me favors. And as I started cashing them in, was able to get some really great blurbs that really got some interest building. And suddenly here we are, and I've got a print. Novel well, let's let's out. talk about one of those blurbs that I read from Laura Lippman, who's you know that's just you're you're climbing the mountain to get to get a blurb <laughs> from her. She actually referred to it, and I, I get a sense of your uh, of of your sense of humor in, during this interview. She called it a black comedy with a heart, among other things. <laughs> that's that's what I've always gone for, and I really do have a, a dark dark sense of humor, and. But it comes from a say, sense of optimism. And and this the book really does kind of – I loved that blur because it really does kind of get it uh-huh. at, at who I am. And that I people tend to lump this in with noir and things like that. But I've never, I've never seen it like that because I don't have that sense of foreboding and that sense of, of pessimism that noir typically comes with. I I relate more with the the old pulp fiction, which is really fun and jolly and just wacky yeah. and over the top and yeah. and crazy. So, so th- tell us about Murder Boy. What's what's the story? So, Murder Boy is about a disgruntled creative writing student in Detroit who has a, a last chance opportunity to get this great fellowship to New York, but to do that, his thesis advisor has to sign off on this crime novel, and his thesis novel advisor is an elitist jerk <laughs> okay and he refuses to sign off on this thesis because he thinks it'll taint his own reputation and his chance at tenure so as most creative writing students would do in that situation he hires a bounty hunter to kidnap his professor <laughs> and it does not go well at all there's they a shock <laughs> yeah they come across the path of a, a baseball obsessed 
serial killer in training who sees his own training as a model of of Dominic's training, our our writer, and latches on to him. And I, I love this character because he's kind of my love affair with the city of Detroit. And this character gets to tell that story of of baseball in Detroit and the history of Detroit and all that. That's how my sense of humor works as a, a serial killer in training, I think makes a great, <laughs> great voice. And the book is coming out when? March 31st. I'm actually leaving tomorrow to start the um, Southwest leg of the book tour. Okay. I'll um, be able to sign at Murder by the Books in Houston and Poison Pen in Scottsdale, Arizona. So they're getting early copies, basically. They are getting early copies, okay. which, going back to something that traditional publishing would have never been able to do, mm-hmm. is respond as quickly as my publisher did when McKenna Jordan from Murder by the Book said, hey, we'd like to have Brian out for an event. Um, can you get us books early? Jason said, sure, and pushed the publishing date up by almost two weeks and was able to get really, really great-looking copies out. So that's something that could only happen with a kind of a well-connected small indie publisher. All right, so you've been you've been in publishing for a long time. You've got a wealth of experience. This is your first book. What is your launch process like? What's what's what are you going through? Tell us. <laughs> tell us the process. I'm making it up as I go. <laughs> um you wrote a, you wrote a Really funny post on your on your blog the other day about essentially hand selling the book to bookstores in your in your local community. Yeah, this is this is one of those things where I've really picked up a lot from my indie publishing clients because they're brilliant at getting their books in places that nobody thought they could get their books into. And even though I'm I've got great distribution through Publishers Group West with my publisher, which is one of the big Mm-hmm. big monsters of, of distribution, there's nothing better than uh, a bookseller seeing your your book in person and the author. And so I, I went out to a local indie store in town and had my book and some bookmarks I had made up and a little flyer that my publisher had made up with ordering information. I was talking to the manager and their orders for their store come from a bigger headquarters. And so she was talking about maybe getting um, the book for consignment. And I said, okay. And so I, I left a copy with them. And as I was turning around, I got tapped on the shoulder <laughs> by a, a gentleman who said, congrats on the book. I uh, was an author and that's how I used to hand sell my books. And I, I turned around and it was Lauren Esselman, <laughs> who's one of the, the, the grand masters of PI fiction. And yes. particularly for a Michigan boy mm-hmm. who grew up in Every story was New York or L.A. or San Francisco. And so to be able to read something that was set in Detroit where I recognized the streets was great. So he's standing there tapping me on the shoulder, congratulating me. <laughs> and so I I was just kind of bumbled my way through it and said thank you. And he went off. And about 10 seconds after that, I realized, holy cow, I have an extra copy of the book in my car. So I ran out, grabbed it, came back in tried not to look like a stalker and and handed it to him and he asked me to sign it. And that was the very first signed copy of my book I gave to anybody was to uh one of my great heroes. That is such an awesome story. So that's what hand selling <laughs> can get you. But then 
if that wasn't great enough, uh, the owners of the bookstore happened to be in there right now while I was there. And the manager had been looking over the book and looking at the blurbs, like the Laurel Lippman one you mentioned, mm-hmm. and told me I needed to come over and, and meet the owners. So she dragged me over by the hand, met them. I got to uh, talk with them about the book and show them baby pictures of my new five-month-old daughter who was holding a copy of the book. And it was just a really cool experience that I think um, I was able to to only get because I was in the store at the right time trying to hand sell it rather than relying on my publisher to do it. So that was something I've really kind of gotten from my, my indie clients is that spirit of, of hand selling and getting out and hitting the pavement and doing work yourself. Even if you are traditionally published, um, nobody's going to look out for your book the way you will. And as Lauren said, he, he was doing this back in the day as well. Yeah, that everybody seems to think of the glory days of publishing. Um, there were no glory days in publishing. <laughs> everybody complained about it wherever it was. And we had self-publishers and indie publishers back in the 1800s, and we still have traditional publishers now. So everybody just has to work together and protect your own, protect your own works. Like I said, nobody's going to protect it like you will. Okay, so you're out, you're hand selling at the local bookstore, and you've yep. got a tour worked out um, where you're you're doing some traveling, going from from place to place. Where all you're going? Um, I'm going to Scottsdale and Houston this week, and then I'm doing a couple of signings back in Michigan in April for the original publishing date, which was April 14th. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be signing at Anne Agatha's mystery bookstore in Ann Arbor, which is the very first mystery bookstore I ever went to, where I bought my early Lauren Estelman copies. Mm -hmm. And looking forward to that. That'll be great. We'll have family and friends and strangers in for cake. It'll be phenomenal. And then I'll be um, up in Flint, speaking at the Barnes & Noble up there, as the kickoff speaker for their Educator Appreciation Week, which I think is hilarious that I've got a story about a student (laughs) who kidnaps a teacher, and I'm kicking off Educator Appreciation Week. Well, that fits in perfectly with your theme of uh, dark comedy. <laughs> yeah. So those are really kind of the only bookstore signings I'm doing because I, I really don't see the the benefit in a lot of this. You know, everybody dreams of the 40-city book signing tour that they show on the movies, but that's really not practical. I'm also looking out to – I'm going to be at comic book conventions. I'm going to be at um, the Chicago Comic-Con and looking for different venues to kind of share my share my books. But I'm also doing a huge online blog tour. Okay, so tell me about I'm, that. Uh, how many how many putting, blogs and how much time have you or or will you spend writing these blog posts? I've just started. Mm-hmm. My goal is um, I want new content on either my website or somebody else's website every day from March 31st when the book's published till. Um, a month after that. So 30 full days of content, um, including podcasts, including some guest posts at places like Criminal Element and Lit Reactor. And then I'm going to be writing on my own site. I'm going to be writing on friends' websites. So that's kind of still in process. So I would encourage everybody to check at brianquatermas.com. And I can't help but share everything over there. So as new dates develop and new sites develop, that's where I'll be 
announcing it. But I see that kind of as the the big crux of the tour is getting out and just meeting online readers and selling some digital copies of the book as well. And we'll have links because it's uh, the the spelling of Brian's name is challenging <laughs> enough, but even the first name is B-R-Y-O-N. So you can find links to all this at theauthorbiz.com slash B-R-Y-O-N. And I'll have links to Brian's website. But Brian, if you want to spell your last name now for people to, to get them to the domain, that's probably a pretty good idea. Sure. It's Q-U-E-R-T-E-R-M-O-U-S. Q-U-E-R-T-E-R-M-O-U-S. Okay. And I'm, I'm Go also ahead. on Twitter, at Brian Q. Ah, that's so easy. That's, that's an easy one. Yes, you. yes. <laughs> All right. A couple final questions for you before we wrap up. Sure. If I'm a traditionally published author, and I'm a little concerned about the publishing landscape, I think maybe I might like to independently publish something. Uh, I'm not sure how to go about finding a, an editor. What's what should I do? What's what process should I use to try and find someone that can give me a really high quality content edit or uh, developmental edit? Look online. Um, talk to people. I I really truly advocate this hybrid approach. Um, I don't think anybody should have all their eggs in any one publishing basket. So I would suggest even if you don't have worries about the publishing industry, if you want to just try something fun and try something new, mm-hmm. um, get out there. The The, the industry is constantly changing. So any resources I might give today might change um, tomorrow. But I direct people to my website. I I try to have a lot of great interviews from indie authors and things like that. But again, the old chestnut of finding agents and publishers with traditional publishing was look through the book acknowledgments and see who they mm-hmm. mention as their agent a, and their editor. That's a really it still good idea. Works for, I've gotten a ton of clients from people reading through the acknowledgments of a book they loved. And indie authors are really great about naming their cover artist, their copy editor, their mm-hmm. interior designer, their developmental editor. And what's great is there's usually hyperlinks in there to the website. So find books you love that are indie published and the the indie community is great. So email the author um, and, and start from there. Yeah, pe- people are amazingly willing to share this information. And mm-hmm. it you undoubtedly, if you're a traditionally published author, you have friends who are traditionally published authors that are now hybrid authors. And yep. so they will have gone through this process. Ask them ask them who, who they've used. Now, w- would you have different advice for uh, maybe a first-time author who's thinking about uh, indie publishing? I would, um, because first-time authors usually need to do more work on their own before they get to an editor. And that's where I really think it, it may sound silly to talk about the the fifty dollar edits and the hundred dollar edits, but for a lot of people, that's what they need at that point in their life is they do just need another set of eyes. So I'm a really experienced editor, and I tend to work with really experienced writers. An editor who's just starting out, who had some great internships in college, or worked on the literary magazine, or um, worked for a year in, in small publishing and for whatever reason couldn't uh, stick with it and had to move move back home. Those are great editors for beginning writers. 
you know, so you want to find an editor who matches with kind of where you are. Dropping eight hundred dollars on me may not be the best best use of of a beginning writer's resources, you know. Because um, a lot I, of times, I would assume they'd get a great education from it, but the the difference between the level that you would expect the work to be at and where it really is is maybe too too great to to overcome with with a right. single edit. <laughs> right, and that's that's usually what it is is it's it's multiple edits that are needed. But a, you learn a lot as a writer um, just from working through your own stuff and getting it to the point where you know you've done what you can do with it, and now you need somebody else to bring in. But um, that would be my advice for for a new person. Now, if they're just new to indie publishing, but they've written five mm-hmm. or six books, I'd say figure out what kind of experience you want. That's what indie publishing offers is a multitude of options. You're not stuck with just one publishing experience. You can decide, do you just want to do one book, one memoir, and be happy with it? Have some print copies on your shelf to sell at reunions? Or do you want a, a full career? So just figure out what kind of publishing experience you want and find professionals that match up with that. Great answer. So, Brian, we've, we've been talking about editing. We've been talking about your new book, Murder Boy, that's available for pre-order at Amazon. Is it available for pre-order at Barnes & Noble? It is. Um, at my website, brianquaturmas.com, mm-hmm. I have pre-order links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, iBooks, IndieBound, all the, all the very variety of places. And, of course, check in to see if uh, Brian's going to be in your neck of the woods and stop by and see him. I would appreciate that. Brian, thanks. This has been absolutely terrific. I appreciate the education you've given us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Brian, thank you so much. That was a fabulous show. How about you? Did Brian answer the questions you had about editing? And wasn't that an amazing story about meeting Lauren Esselman? It's wonderful what happens when we put ourselves out there. Can you picture yourself walking into every bookstore in your town, trying to convince those booksellers to sell your books? It worked for Brian, and it obviously worked for Lauren Esselman as well. And finally, I mentioned last week that we're launching a new podcast aimed directly at readers. The new show is scheduled to launch April 14th, and it's called Crime Fiction FM. The show will feature short 10 to 20 minute interviews with the authors of new release crime fiction. Subscribers to the AuthorBiz email list received an email from me about a week ago explaining the show and what we're trying to accomplish, and several have already scheduled interviews. If you're not on the AuthorBiz email list, you can subscribe by going to theauthorbiz.com and clicking the big green Join Us button. Now, if you write crime fiction and have a new release coming out this summer, I'd love to consider you as a guest on Crime Fiction FM. If you don't write crime fiction, but have friends who do, please let them know about the show. You and your friends can learn more about the show and sign up for that email list as well at crimefiction.fm. And that's .fm, not .com. If you like what we're doing here at The Author Biz, will you do me a big favor? One of the things that drives traffic to a podcast is ratings and comments in iTunes. So when you're finished listening here, can you go over to iTunes and give the show a comment or a rating? Last week, Carla F., writer, gave the show a five-star rating and said, I listen to this podcast and learn something new with each interview. 
I'm so happy there's a podcast devoted to the business side of publishing. Carla, thanks. It's easy to leave a review. If you're not sure how, just go to theauthorbiz.com slash review. And that's a wrap. Have an amazing week, everybody. I hope to talk to you again next Monday.